Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 this morning, we'll be looking at the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 4. There we read, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to were about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them in evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Acts, quotes an 18th century philosopher that said, All tyrannical governments have one mode of operation and that is to keep those underneath them afraid and scared. And as long as the people live in terror, they can control them and dictate them, their actions and even their thoughts. But this philosopher also went on to say that it only takes one person, one courageous person to withstand the tyrants in order to take down the whole regime. This month, we celebrate the actions of one such man, that of Martin Luther, who did exactly that. We can think of other individuals in history, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and many others, those who are willing to stand up to say, this is not right, and I will not go along with it. Oftentimes, to do so came at the expense of their well-being, and even their very life. But that example oftentimes can start a wave, can start a 
movement of others that are willing to do the same. And that is when radical movements of change can happen and take place. Obviously, another example is the example of Christ. His life and his teaching, no doubt, disrupted the status quo of the day, which resulted in his death. It was committed by the leaders of the day out of convenience, thinking that if they eliminated Jesus, then their problems would be solved. Well, our passage this morning demonstrates that it would not be as easy as they thought because the mission and the ministry of Jesus was still spreading. And that is because we know of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was at work converting, changing hearts. And this band of disciples, which goes from just a, a few, go to several thousand. In fact, you see it in our passage today that there was at least at this time 5,000 men. That does not count the women and the children that also were converted. And so we could say it was in the tens of thousands that were now believing in Christ. All of this demonstrates, doesn't it, that a movement had begun, that the flames had spread. That despite the leaders of the day, their best attempts was not able to quell this fire. And that is still true today. Despite great hostility in our country and around the world, where everything is tolerated except the preaching and teaching and believing in the name of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, the spread of the gospel still goes forth. And in fact, you could say the more the adversity, the more the persecution, the quicker the spread. No doubt we can see this in our day around the world, in places like China and Africa and Middle East, where persecution is taking place. More and more are believing and trusting in the name of Jesus. Tertullian, an early church father who lived in the midst of Roman persecution, wrote to and against his persecutor. And he wrote these words to them. The more we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. We must not forget that. And therefore, we must be willing to endure such persecution for the sake of Christ because through it, his kingdom is spreading. And I think this passage before us this morning shows us how Peter and John here give a defense of their actions and of their faith. They do not kowtow to the wishes and to the whims of the leaders of that day, but instead they boldly proclaim the name of Christ. And through it, we must follow their example and ultimately the example of our Lord. We'll see this passage in three points this morning. 
the arrest, the interrogation, and then the judgment. First, the arrest. As you know, context is always helpful. If you've been with us the last two weeks, then you already know the context well. All of this comes after a very busy day of Peter and John healing this lame beggar at the gates of the temple. This man that was born a paralytic that was now made well by the apostles through the power of Christ, so much so that he was able to walk and leap and enter into the temple courts. And this was no doubt a a fantastic miracle. In fact, at the very end of our passage, we know that this man was 40 years old. So in other words, for 40 years, because he was born lame, was not able to walk, was not able to leap, and now here he was standing and leaping and praising God. As you can imagine, this caused quite a stir. Hundreds, if not thousands, began to assemble to see what was going on, to see it with their very own eyes. And Peter, as we saw last week, uses this opportunity to preach and to preach Christ and preach he does. As we saw last week, it's a a powerful sermon of conviction and condemnation, as well as faith and repentance in Christ. But such a gathering and such a preaching does not go under the radar of the officials of the day. As we see in our passage this morning, we see that it was not only an opportunity to preach Christ, but it also seems as if this preaching, this healing, was the inauguration of persecution in the early church. And it starts with the arrest of Peter and John, two of the leaders of the disciples and obviously of the apostles. Now you might say that inauguration might seem like a a funny word to use in this context, but I think it's appropriate because it's through persecution, and we must not forget through persecution that the church is refined and renewed and sharpened in its ministry and in its work. It's a part, if not the main part, by which we pick up our cross daily and follow Christ to endure the persecution for the sake of Christ and the kingdom of God. And God does and will bless this type of work, this type of suffering, this type of persecution, if we're doing it for him and for his own glory. We see in verse 1 that as they were preaching to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. In other words, they are attracting not only everyone from Jerusalem, but they are attracting the leaders of the day. You could say that the the priest here would be the religious leader of the day. The, The captain of the temple was probably a Roman official, and the Sadducee was a political leader of the day. In many ways, it kind of sounds like a joke. A Jew, a Roman, and a priest enter into the temple. But this is no laughing matter. What is incredibly interesting, at least to me, and surprising, is how these groups were always at odds with one another, except when they come in commonality 
against and in opposition to Christ and his disciples. Common hatred can create strange bedfellows. And that is what you have here. And notice how Luke puts it. It says that they were greatly disturbed, or as the ESV puts it, greatly annoyed. I think that is an accurate statement. They had thought that they had taken care of this problem. They thought they had washed their hands, that they were done with this, but they realized, or at least they realized in this moment, that this was a much bigger problem than they realized. And in many ways, they are annoyed. And this reminds me, perhaps you'll think less of me, of a certain 80s cartoon where the bad man or the bad woman is apprehended and the identity is discovered. And this person says something to this effect, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids and your dog Scooby-Doo, right? I always think of that when I read this passage. I don't know why. But I think that's what this group thought. We could have gotten away with this if it weren't for you meddling kids, you persistent disciples who just won't go away. And you're ruining our plans. You're ruining our power. The apostles, thank God, continue to persist. They continue to preach the same message. And so the leaders do that which they are able to do, which they have the power to do, and that is to arrest Peter and John. And we also know from this context, even the man that was healed. And it says that they kept them to the next day because it was a ready evening. So you see that Peter and John went to the temple at the the afternoon prayer hour, and now it is evening. And so they had spent the whole day preaching and teaching, and as a result, many had come to believe, as it says, in that which they were teaching and preaching. And that number grew to about 5,000 men, as it says in verse 4. But we see the very next day, our second point, the interrogation. They bring Peter and John in front of this very esteemed as that meaning powerful group of Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family, and all of the Sadducees. You read this, this should be a familiar crew to you. This is the mob squad, so to speak. They'd done the very same thing to Jesus on the night that he was arrested. And so too, here are Peter and John in the same manner, just as their Lord had done many days before, or before these same Jewish leaders with a quasi-religious position to justify their power. It was political positions, really, under the guise of religiosity. And as you see, they were not pleased. They had not been pleased with Jesus. Now they are not pleased with his disciples. In this case, Peter and John. And you would think, as this was taking place, as they are assembling, and as they have Peter and John before them, you would think that they would have thought, you know what, this seems 
strangely familiar. And last time, that didn't go so well. And so maybe we shouldn't do this. And you know what? Maybe we're even wrong. But do any of those thoughts come to mind? Well, not seemingly. Why? Because no doubt this group never thought they were wrong. They're always in the right. And therefore, they question Peter and John. Really, they are trying to intimidate them into submission. And so they ask this question. By what power, verse 7, or by what name did you do this? It really is a, a great question. But the reality is, they don't want the answer. At least they don't want the truth. Why? Because they already know the answer. These men are a known commodity. In fact, later on, it'll say that they knew that these men had been with Jesus. They knew that they were disciples of Jesus. See, the problem is that they don't like the answer. More fully, they don't believe the answer. They don't believe in the name of Jesus. They knew whose name they were doing this in, but they do not believe in that name, and that is the problem. But this does not stop Peter from continuing to proclaim that name and that answer. But before we look at what Peter exactly says, you have to appreciate this situation. This was a very intimidating and frightening setting. These men were some of the most powerful men of the time. These were the same men that ultimately led to the crucifixion of Christ. You remember, if it was not for the Sadducees, if it wasn't for Annas and Caiaphas, the the Romans probably wouldn't have done anything. But they felt the pressure coming from the Jewish people to put forward Jesus in order for him to be crucified. See, they couldn't crucify him, and so they pushed him forward so that the Romans would do, essentially, their dirty work. And now, Peter and John are before that same group, before that same people. And Peter and John, no doubt, knew it. They recognized that their lives in this moment hung in the balance. And humanly speaking, you can imagine, it would have been very easy for them to cave. To essentially say what this group wanted to hear. If they wanted to get out of this situation with the skin on their back, they would have just said what this group wanted them to say, to just be silent, just to slink away, so to, we, so to speak. But that is not how they approached this situation, did they? We see that they were to be witnesses for Christ, even if that meant being witnesses unto death, which obviously could have been the outcome in this very situation. And I don't know about you, but I find that very convicting. Because if you think about yourself being in that situation, what is it that you would do? If your life was on the line, what would you say? Would you say what is right and what is true? 
or what is easy and expedient. And I ask that of all of us. But I want to particularly ask the the young people among us. This culture is becoming more and more hostile, and ever so. And faithfully following Jesus will be harder now and in the coming days than probably it ever has been in our country. And you need to know that, young people. You youth, those that are in middle school and high school and those about ready to to go off to college. So I want to ask you that question. Will you follow Christ? Will you be witnesses for him? If it means your reputation, if it means your grades, if it means not being popular, if it means not being on the in crowd, will you still follow Christ? And I ask you that because that answer needs to be made now, not then, not when you get into the situation. You need to think through those things, think through those scenarios in this place at this time when the pressure is not on you. I asked one of my children the other day, do you love Jesus? Then I asked, do you always and, and forever love him? And then I asked, will you love him even unto death? And then I asked, what if it meant your death? That if following Christ meant that you had to die for Christ, would you still do it? Oh, the joys of being a preacher's kid, right? Forever being interrogated by your dad. But those questions are, are more than just for kids, or more than just for preacher's kids. It's for all of us. The disciples here and in Acts, as we will see, were willing, even unto death. And in most cases, that's what happened. Most of them were martyred for their faith. And you might ask, what gave them such courage? Well, no doubt the the example of their Lord, but also the, the words of Jesus must have been ringing in their ears, like the words of Matthew 10 when Jesus says, it is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of the household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you have heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that is what the disciples are are doing here. That they are preaching and proclaiming Christ wherever and whenever they go. Including to the Sanhedrin. Including in front of this council of rulers and elders. And why are they willing to do it? Why are they able to have that courage? Well, it's because of what Jesus said, right? Fear God rather than fear man. Yes, man can kill the body, but only God has control over the soul. And so Peter uses this opportunity to proclaim Christ. As it says in verse 8, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, rulers of the people, 
and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, he's essentially saying, hey, if we're being arrested here because we did a good deed, then we're guilty as charged. But in a sense, he's calling their bluff, isn't he? He is saying, you're not arresting us because we have done something that is, that is good and that is right and obviously is, is being seen as a, a good thing amongst the people. We're being arrested for, for one reason and one reason alone because we are doing these things in the name of Christ. That is what you do not like. That is what you hate. And that is okay because we will still proclaim him Anyway, and so he goes on to say in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. He says, if you want to know, I'll tell you. Here it is. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who you crucified, by the way, but now God is raised from the dead. And do you want a proof? You need proof that he is risen and that he is alive? Here it is, exhibit A, this man healed. We didn't do it, as he said in the sermon last week, not by our power, not by our piety. It's only by Christ alone that this man is healed. So you see that Christ is alive and well. And Peter then goes on and he turns the table. Those that came to interrogate him, now he is the one that is interrogating them. And in fact, he really doubles down. You look at verse 11. He quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to to Psalm 118, because I want you to see how indicting this statement truly is. Jesus used this prophecy about himself in Psalm 118, and Peter is using it here as well to say that the stone which you have rejected has become the foundational stone. It's the stone on which the whole building stands or falls. And if you miss this, then you see it clearly in Psalm 118, because Psalm 118 makes it very abundantly clear. Notice, it says right there in verse 22 where he got this quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But back up one verse. He says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Who is the psalmist speaking to about here? Who is he speaking to? Well, if you go up a little bit farther in context, context is always king, as they say. We read in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Notice that Lord in your Bible is no doubt capitalized, which means that it's the proper name for the Lord. It's Yahweh. So therefore, I give thanks to Yahweh. Then he goes on to say, This is the gate of Yahweh, the righteous shall enter through it. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me, that you have become my salvation, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. 
you see what Peter is doing by quoting this verse. He is saying that the salvation that comes to us comes only in the name of Yahweh. Why is that important? Because what is it that Peter says back in Acts chapter 4, right after he quotes this verse? He says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see what Peter is saying? He is using this verse in context. The psalmist says, I thank you that I have salvation in your name. Peter says, that name is the name of Christ. Often this verse, verse 12, we use it for the exclusivity of Christ. And that is true. We need to know that, that there is salvation in no other name. And when we live in a pluris, pluralistic society, that is an important truth, but that is not why Peter is saying this. Remember, the, the Sadducees were monergistic. They, they believed that there was salvation only in one name. But notice what Peter is saying. That name, the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, is Christ. That's where we find salvation. See, the Sadducees believed that there was salvation in Yahweh. They didn't believe Jesus was Yahweh. And Peter is saying, no, that is him. That is why he says there is salvation in no other name. There was only one name in Jewish belief that was to be revered and feared, so holy that it was never to be mentioned. That was the name of Yahweh. Peter is saying in this verse, yep, that is him. That is Jesus, the one in whom you crucified. So you must understand this, that when Peter quotes this, the Sadducees knew exactly what he was saying. So did the Pharisees. They knew Psalm 118. They knew that verse. And in fact, they perhaps even had it memorized. And so no doubt when Peter said this, their minds must have exploded because either Peter is right or he is blaspheming the greatest blaspheme that anyone can utter. Because that is the division. That either Jesus is God, he is Yahweh, or he is not. And Peter is saying, if you do not believe in Jesus, then you do not have salvation in Yahweh. Because Jesus is Yahweh. That division is still true today, my people. Why is it that people hate the name of Christ. Well, if they can articulate it or not, it is because he is God. And in our depravity, in our sin, we are in rebellion, we are in war against our creator God. That's why. And if you are an unbeliever here this morning, we are glad that you are here, but I want to tell you, I want to expose your own belief, your own false belief, that you do not believe in God, you may give many reasons and excuses for it, but the heart of the matter, it comes down to this. You do not want to believe in Jesus because you do not want to be, believe in God. You do not want to submit to God, submit your life to him because you would rather be God. You would rather be in control. You would rather do what you want to do, how you do it, how you please, however you like. You need to listen to these words. 
and we all do. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we must be saved. And that salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. Well, Peter goes on to give judgments. The Sadducees and Pharisees try to make and create judgment on Peter and John, but rather Peter and John judge them. They try to confer together and say that they are no longer to do this. They cannot renounce the the miracle. They cannot say that is untrue. Why? Because obviously here is this man that was 40 years lame, now walking and standing in front of them. So they can only do what they are seemingly able to do, which is to warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Again, it demonstrates the real reason why they are annoyed, why they are disturbed, why they arrested Peter and John, because they were doing this in the name of Christ. It's amazing. Again, you would think, as they think about this, as they confer about this, that they would, they would stop and, and, and consider it and, and, and think, this is amazing. This is incredible. This is truly the work of God. Do they think that way? No, they just continue to think this is a problem that we need to take care of. That many people are, are believing in him, and believing in Jesus, rather than essentially believing in us. And we can't have that. We need to keep power. We need to keep control. Demonstrates, again, absolute power corrupt. Absolutely. But we see that Peter and John, once again, Instead of taking this judgment, receiving this judgment, they turn around and judge those that are trying to judge them. Because Peter says to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He says to them, you ready? Have us to denounce Jesus like you do as Yahweh. But as you see from Psalm 118, he is truly God. He is the true judge. And we cannot reject the true God, the true Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so would you have us to do that which we cannot do? Would you have us to do that which Yahweh has told us to do? Would you have us to be against God like you are? No, we cannot do that. And then he says some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. You see it in verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we cannot not do this. We have seen and heard too much. Our lives have been radically changed by this message by this gospel, by this Jesus Christ. And that is the true heart of witnessing, isn't it? You know, there's many philosophies, many uh, ways that are talked about how we are to, to witness and be 
evangelists for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's probably no better verse than this. That you should do it because we cannot not do it. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Isn't that true of us? Yes, we physically haven't seen the Lord Jesus Christ as as the apostles did. But truly we've seen his work, haven't we? We've seen his work in us and we've seen his work in others. That we were dead and now we are alive. That we were going in this direction and now we're going in that direction. That the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us and that the fruits of the Holy Spirit are coming forth from us and we have that which the world knows nothing about that cannot be found, that cannot be purchased or experienced in this world. It's through this that we go forth proclaiming the name of Christ. And how can't we do it? We've been changed. We've been renewed. If we're living in the newness of this life, this verse oftentimes is usually cited as the verse for civil disobedience. And that is true, it is. And you may need to do that. You may be put in that position perhaps one day. But more than that, this entire verse, this entire passage, I would say is not so much wholesale rebellion and disobedience as it is whole life obedience unto God. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that if we are faithfully following Christ, oftentimes that will put you in opposition to the world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Again, may you or would you have to perhaps one day rebel against kings and rulers and those in power? Perhaps, but more than that, much more than that. What this passage is saying is that we need to submit to his word daily. And we need to bow our knees to the lordship of Christ. And we need to follow faithfully the ways of God, not just then, but every day. And that is so important to understand because what we are not trying to do is raise up revolutionaries here. We're trying to raise up faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Because I tell you, that is the only revolution that is needed. Listen, and I'll conclude with this here. We've gotten a reputation as a church during this COVID time of being, quote-unquote, the church that is open. If you think it was to stick it to the government, you are completely off because that was not a motivation ever, nor will be. It was purely to continue to gather together as we are commanded to, to worship the triune God, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. That is our motivation. Our motivation is not to be fists raised to the government. No, our motivation is to be hands raised in prayer and praise to God. And we will continue to do that, Lord willing, 
both in the face of freedom and even in the face of persecution. That's what we're called. You understand, this is not so much about being disobedient as it is being obedient unto the Lord. And like it says in verse 21, even though these people continued to threaten them and try to punish them, they continued on. And that is the path that is before us. If the, the world and the devil threaten and even punish, we would continue on in our praise and prayer of God because that is what we are called. And I believe through courage, it will come. Not courage in ourselves, not being bold in and of ourselves, but because we can do no other. Why? Because we, we fear God and we worship him. Luther, 500 years ago, stood before the, the Diet of Worms as he stood before those that were calling him to account and bringing charges against him. And he said those famous words that it's not right or good to go against conscience. And then he says why that is. Because he said his conscience is held captive to the word of God. It's held captive to the word of Christ. And therefore, he could not go back. He could not renounce these things that he said and spoke because they are true. And just like the disciples on this day could not but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard, so too, that is our calling. And I tell you, that is how a movement takes place. That is how a reformation takes place, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as the people of God faithfully follow Christ in obedience, because we can do no other. So help us, God. May the Lord be pleased to do such a work in and through us. And like I said, it may not be before kings and rulers this week, but it will be in faithful obedience, faithful submission, in walking with the Lord. May we do so by his power and in his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this challenging word, for the example of Peter and John who were willing to speak forth the name of Christ, that we're not willing to cave. We're not willing to do that which was easy or even expedient at the time, but we're willing to use it as an opportunity, a witness for Christ. Lord, would we be faithful in this means and in this manner as we faithfully follow Christ once again this week? Would you help us again? We pray in Christ's name.